Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Hey, good morning, Mercy family. Good morning. It's good to see you. Um, hey, before I jump into the actual text today, uh, this morning is Starting Point uh, here, or we are hosting something called Starting Point here at Mercy Church. It'll be a reception immediately after the end of this service that'll be right here down front. I'm going to host it. And the idea behind it is that it is a starting point for you if you are newer to Mercy Church. I'm just going to share a little bit about who we are, uh, what we're all about, what drives us, and what it looks like to be a part of the church here. So if you're trying to figure out, man, is this a church for me, uh, that will be the spot for you. I want to invite you to join me for that. Again, right, it's about 10 minutes after the service starts. Uh, we'll be right down here. All right. With that said, we have reached the end of our series, sermon series, in the book of Ruth. So if you got your Bible, make your way over to Ruth chapter 4. And I want to take today to highlight what I think the author of Ruth is doing with the whole book. We're going to go all the way to the end of chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 18 and go all the way to verse 22. Now, if you remember, last week we showed the conclusion of this awesome little narrative, this short story, and Ruth and Boaz, our leading woman and leading man, they have a son together. If you're new with us, here's the, the short story. Again, the story itself is pretty short. You can read it. But Ruth is this awesome a widow from Moab who moves to Bethlehem with her mother-in-law, Naomi, who is also a widow. Naomi is coming home because her husband has died, her two sons have died, but back home, even though she's coming home bitter about all of that, back home things start to look up. Ruth meets the generous farmer, Boaz. They fall in love for a brief moment. It looks like it's not going to work out, but then it does work out. They get married and they have a son, which means the family line that Naomi thought had come to a bitter end would actually be carried on. It's an incredible, beautiful, rich story of God's redeeming love and his faithfulness to three people. And then you, you would think right there would be the end. There's the son. The family line's going to be carried on uh, happily ever after. End of story. But instead, we get this rather strange conclusion at the end of the book of Ruth. I'm going to read you our text in full today. Ruth 4, 18 through 22. Here we go. Now these are the family records of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. The end. <laughs> now, first, this is kind of strange. Like a genealogy doesn't appear too riveting. I didn't hear y'all like, whoa, you know, when we got to one of those. Um, there's not a lot of suspense in it, but I'm going to tell you that I've found genealogies in scripture to actually be very faith activating parts of scripture for me. That's because their purpose is to help us zoom out, to see that if you, if you thought what God did in one situation, like what he did with, with Ruth and Boaz, and you thought that was good, 
Man, wait until you see how he used this situation over time. Wait until you see what he was doing way before and way after that. And to do that, the author gives us 10 generations, which is pretty typical in an ancient genealogy. And he makes Boaz the seventh generation because seventh was a a number and a placeholder of honor in genealogies like this. It's put here at the book of Ruth as a way of helping the reader who has been immersed in the drama zoom out and see its impact on future generations, to see the providence of God over generations. So today, we're going to look at this genealogy, and Lord willing, we're going to worship our way through it. We're going to see how this is actually a piece of a larger genealogy, and we're just going to kind of keep zooming out. Kind of like, um, you guys ever play around on Google Earth? Don't lie, you do. So you just do it at work, and so you're feeling bad about it. But you do, and you're playing around on it, and you can zoom like all the way in, and you zoom all the way in to where? So you get to your house, right? And you get to your house, and you realize that the Google car came around while you were mowing the yard, and you're like, man, that unflattering picture of me is going to be on the internet for 10 years until Google car shows up again, right? So you're there, but then you start zooming out and zooming out and zooming out until you see the whole earth, right? That's kind of like what the book of Ruth is, is kind of set up for. It zoomed out, started zoomed out in the time of the judges, So here's a story that's happening in the the context, zoom out, whole nation of Israel, and then it zoomed in, there were three people, right? Naomi, Ruth, Boaz, in a little town called Bethlehem. Awesome story, God's redeeming love, but it doesn't end, like I said, with happily ever after. It seems like it should, but instead it zooms out. But it doesn't zoom out in geography, it zooms out in time. And instead of seeing a large amount of land, we zoom out and we see a large amount of time. And just like the purpose of Google Earth or or any globe is to show you a picture that is bigger than what you are able to see with your own eyes. So a genealogy in scripture is there to help you zoom out and see God's bigger picture, how God works in many places at the same time and how God works his plan over the course of generations. So as we look at this, my hope is to illuminate the faithfulness of God for you. And in doing so, I hope your head and your heart are stirred to worship because we serve a God who in his kindness reveals through scripture how he has remained faithful to his purposes with his people over generations. And seeing that faithfulness, that should stir faith in us. It helps us zoom out. Here's the connection to today. Helps us zoom out from the situations and the relationships that are consuming our thought life right now. Helps us to zoom out from that. And by zooming out and seeing the bigger picture of what God has done, that he has been so faithful, it totally changes how we approach the right now. So I want to invite you today to zoom out and see the faithfulness of God. Now, as we walk through a genealogy, Courtney, my wife, gave me one morning. She's like, just don't nerd out on these people with this thing, okay? There's a danger you could do that. Well, I'm going to do it anyways, all right? (laughs) So it's going to be, it might be a little nerdy in spots, and that's great. Because Bible nerds are the best nerds, all right? So we're going to get in there. It's going to be great. I'm going to show you. I'm just going to highlight three names that are in this genealogy, show you the faithfulness of God through them. Then I'm going to show you. We're going to zoom out again, and I'm going to show you how this all connects to Jesus. And then I'm going to zoom out again and show you how it connects to this very moment that we're sitting in right now. All right? So we'll start in verse 18, and we'll look at Perez and the faithfulness of God says, these are the family records of Perez. It's even amazing to me that Perez is where, they, is where this thing starts. Because he was the son of a guy named Judah. Judah was one of the 12 sons of Jacob, 
Those 12 sons became the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. It's a big deal in Old Testament history. But, this is very important, only one of those 12 would be the one that carried on God's promise to bless the nations of the earth. God made a promise to Abraham back in Genesis 12 that through Abraham's offspring, God would bless all the nations of the earth. Well, that gets passed from Abraham to Isaac, Isaac to Jacob. And in his old age, Genesis 49... Jacob says that promise is going to continue through Judah. But that doesn't make sense when you're just reading Genesis initially because you're like, wait a minute, this whole thing has been setting up Joseph. His younger son, Joseph, is clearly the one that's going to get passed through. But no, Jacob says, Genesis 49.10, the scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until he whose right it is comes and the obedience of the people belongs to him. Some future, future Messiah, some future king. And this is surprising because Judah is one of the ones that really messed up, and it's on record in Scripture, Genesis 38. Judah had three sons. The first one he gives in marriage to a woman named Tamar. That son is evil, so the Lord kills him. So Judah gives Tamar his second son, who is evil, and the Lord kills him. Oh, for two, all right? He has a third son that he promises to Tamar, and I don't know because if he's like, I don't know what's happening in those marriages, but whatever it is, he promises Um, the third son, but then never gives the third son to Tamar. So here's Tamar, an old widow, really burned by this family and by Judah's lies. She disguises herself as a prostitute, and then Judah, her father-in-law, goes and sleeps with her. She gets pregnant. That's some family dysfunction, all right? The child is Perez. That's the child, our guy here, who will carry on God's promise to bless all nations. Here's what I want you to see in this. When you zoom out, you can see God bring future redemption to present dysfunction. He loves to do it. He loves to do it. And some of you just need to receive it today because you're in a whole mess of dysfunction right now. And for these few moments while we are sitting here together in God's word, considering his message to us, I just want you to receive that he can bring future redemption to present dysfunction. And I want you to find fresh hope in that. Hope that your present dysfunction does not have to be permanent dysfunction. He loves to redeem. And my encouragement to you is to trust him right now. Yes, you need to repent of your sin where it's your sin that's led that way. But some of you, it's not been your sin. You've been the child like Perez of dysfunction. And you need to receive that God can redeem what has been broken. You need to come to Jesus and lay your burden down at his feet. Because he said his yoke is easy and his burden is light when you follow him. And that's because he's with you. And pull in other believers here in the church and let us walk with you. We keep going a couple, I got to go through these. We're going to go a couple names further down, and we're going to see Boaz, our guy, who's been with us these past few weeks from the story of Ruth. And here at the end of the story, we're zoomed out, and we're reminded of where he came from. Verse 21, Boaz in the faithfulness of God, Salmon fathered Boaz. Salmon, not Sam and the fish, but Salmon, the guy. Okay, I know y'all are thinking it. I'm just voicing it. All right. He fathers Boaz. And actually what I want you to pick up on here is not Boaz's father as much as it is his mother. Because very few moms are recorded in scripture and genealogies like this. So we got to pay attention when they are. And we don't see his mom mentioned here or there. This same thing is over in 1 Chronicles uh, 1. We don't see it there either. 
We don't see it until Matthew chapter 1, where it says, Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Rahab. Some of y'all know your Bibles are like, wait, Boaz's mom was Rahab? Yes, for those of you newer to the Bible, Rahab was a prostitute in a city called Jericho. She gave shelter to a couple of spies from Israel who were there to scout out the city before they attacked. And because she helped them, her family was the only one spared when God's people attacked Jericho. You might remember the story uh, if you grew up on the Bible or something like that. But the short story is, you know, Joshua leads the people up to Jericho. He's like, we're going to march around this thing one time a day for seven days. On the seventh day, we're going to go around seven times. We're going to shout. We're going to blow trumpets. And that whole thing is going to fall down. And that's what he says. But then he says, but hang on before we go. There's one thing I want everybody in Israel to know. There's one family that we're going to spare out of that whole thing. And that's Rahab. We're going to spare Rahab and her family. They're going to belong to God. They're going to be a part of God's people now. Oh, man. It says she lived in Israel from that day on. God redeemed her past. Brought her into his people She meets a guy named Salmon, and they have a son named Boaz. It was through this woman, the outsider brought in, that God preserved the promise he made to Abraham. How awesome is that? When you zoom out, what you start to see, you can learn to trust God's provision for the future. Rahab left her people, left her past. Something happened that made her leave the life she knew and choose God and his people. And she did not know much when that happened. And what we know, we don't know much about her story. We just know that God provided to her and through her in her future. And I want to say that to you who have never trusted God before. Something's stirring in you and God has brought you to the crossroads, even the crossroads of winding up in a church or watching this online or listening to this on a podcast or whatever. The point of us being here now, gathered together, looking at a genealogy is to encourage you that God will provide for you. He will be faithful to you when you trust him. He will. Now, it may mean walking away from your old life. It will mean walking away from your old life. You're not going to be the first person to sacrifice everything to follow Jesus. In fact, the story of the Christians here at Mercy Church, every one of us in some way or another has had to say, I don't know how this is going to work out, but I know that Jesus died for my sins. I know he rose from the grave. I know I need that salvation, that forgiveness, and so I'm going to trust him, and I don't know how it's going to work out. And the purpose of the genealogy is to remind you, you can trust him. It's not always going to be easy. He'll just provide for you, though. Peace the comfort of a heavenly father, the community of the church, and security in his presence now and forevermore. Let me go a couple more names down, down to the end. Verse 22, Jesse fathered David. Let's talk about David and the faithfulness of God. If you remember last week, I told you that the genealogy going all the way to David meant that, of course, this book had to be written after David was born and grown. Otherwise, it'd be like, you know, Boaz fathered Obed, and I bet he's going to have a son named Jesse. And I bet, you know, it's like, no, it had to be written after all of this. The whole point of the genealogy, as a matter of fact, is to verify David's lineage. It's almost like David is zooming out, or probably Solomon, David's son, zooming out and pointing back to another spot on the timeline to verify David's credentials. David is the most well-known Old Testament figure outside of Moses, or maybe even including Moses. And yet he comes from a line of farmers. 
Boaz, Obed, Jesse, farmers. He grows up in the countryside. And while there are a number of things we could say about David for the sake of Boaz and our genealogy here, let's say this. When the prophet Samuel was sent by God to find the next king, to find God's anointed who would lead Israel, he was told to go to Jesse's house. And Jesse lines up, you see this over in 1 Samuel 16, he lines up all these sons. All right, all of a sudden, the dude had a lot of sons, all right? Lines them all up so that Samuel could assess them and see which one was God's anointed. And Samuel gives one glance at the oldest son, which would be typical. In that time, goes to the oldest son, and he goes, this is the guy. I know it's the guy. We got him. First one. Let's go. And God says, nope. And Samuel goes, are you sure? Which is always not the spot. You never want to be in the spot where you're asking God. Are you sure about that? You know, like, yes, he's God. He's sure. Right? And God says to Samuel, 1 Samuel 16, 7, do not look at his appearance or his stature because I have rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees. For humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. And David's going to be the one selected. David was the youngest. His father, his own father, didn't even line him up with the rest of the sons. He kept him out in the field because he didn't want to waste Samuel's time. But the Lord had other plans and used the unlikely youngest son, musician, sheep herder David to preserve his promise to his people. Samuel anoints David. And the next chapter, 1 Samuel 17, David volunteers to face Goliath in combat. Speaking of Goliath, remember Naomi's other daughter-in-law? For those of you that have been with us, go all the way back to chapter 1. Her name was Orpah. If you remember how instead of, in that moment, they were on the road, and Naomi's like, I'm going home to Bethlehem, and Ruth says, I'm going to go with you. Your people are going to be my people. Your God's going to be my God. And Orpah says, I ain't going. And she goes back to Moab. Okay. According to the Babylonian Talmud, so we're moving outside of Scripture, but this is a very commonly referenced document. There's a lot of historical accuracy to it, but it's historical. But listen, according to the Talmud, she has four sons, one of whom was Goliath. That's right, that Goliath. Not a common name. That Goliath. That was the Goliath. Can you see how from one decision on a road... The decision, am I going to follow God and his people, or am I going to go a different direction? Two armies are formed, the Lord's army and the Philistines. Anyways, David volunteers, and when he volunteers to his current king at the time, Saul, he, zoom, he himself zooms out. 1 Samuel 17, 37. Listen, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. Remembering the Lord's faithfulness to him before gives him confidence the Lord will see him through the battle in front of him. Y'all, when you zoom out, you can see the Lord has always been faithful. Always been faithful. And what I want to encourage some of y'all to do today, maybe this is your soul work for today, and we don't call it homework because everybody has enough work at home now all the time, so we call it soul work. You go home, and maybe it's just writing out, looking back over your life, and saying, look, I got this Philistine in front of me, but I know that the Lord delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear. And I just need to write those down, those moments where they happened, how the Lord was faithful to me even in this really hard moment, and then I can take comfort. He is with me now. Let's zoom out again. And we go from David to Jesus. And we see Jesus in the faithfulness of God. See, 2 Samuel 7, 
David has ascended to the throne, but it doesn't all go too well. Because David's human, he's not perfect, and actually he messes up a few times. I do not have enough time in this sermon to document all the ways this guy messes up. And though the Lord remains faithful to David, he makes sure David knows that David is not the Messiah Israel needs. 2 Samuel 7 just says simply, I will raise up after you your descendant. It won't be you. I'm going to raise up your descendant. He's the one who's going to sit on the throne. It's not going to be you. No, one of your descendants. And then it says, um, if you go and you look that up, he will reign on your throne forever. Forever. That one will reign on your throne forever. I feel like I'm going in a sandlot. Forever. Right? Like you need to emphasize when you look at that particular verse. It's super important when you see that over in verse 13. So then we get to Matthew chapter 1, the end of Jesus's genealogy. Jacob fathered Joseph. Joseph, the husband of Mary, make sure again to bring in a mom. She's super important, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David until the exile to Babylon were 14 generations, and from the exile to Babylon until the Messiah, 14 generations. And here's what I want you to see. God has been faithful to his promise. The promise he made to Abraham, he fulfilled, and he used dysfunctional, unlikely, sometimes flat-out disobedient people. He redeemed them generation after generation. You read Matthew 1, you're going to see Judah and Tamar, Salmon and Rahab. You're going to see the beautiful story of Boaz and Ruth. You're going to see David and Uriah's wife is who that goes through. If I had time, I'd tell you. And all of this telling a big zoom out story to see God is faithful to his promise to send a Messiah to his people from David's lineage who will save them from their sins and reign on the throne forever. That's Jesus. Yet is also born of God himself, born in the lineage of David, yet also born of God himself, fully God, fully man, without sin, dies for the sins of the world, rises from the dead so he can reign over God's kingdom forever. He fulfilled God's promise to Abraham and to David, just like God said he would. He fulfills Isaiah's prophecy that by the wounds of the Messiah, you and I would be healed, forgiven and healed from our sin. He fulfills hundreds of Old Testament prophecies that's our God. It's a God who keeps all of his promises and keeps them in Christ. When you zoom out off of the pages of your life, you see Jesus. If you'll just zoom out, you will see Jesus. You zoom all the way out to the foundation of the earth, Jesus was there. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Since before the dawn of time, Jesus was there. When they finally made man, it was they, God singular, yet in three persons, let us make man in our image. Then the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And when Peter was sinking into the water, Jesus was there. When the boat's about to capsize in the storm, Jesus was there. When they came for him in the night, he didn't run. He knew they were coming and they stayed there. And when humanity needed a worthy sacrifice for its sins, he was there. And when humanity needed death defeated, I guess better say he wasn't there, right? The only place in all of the cosmos you will not find Jesus is in the grave. He's not there. And at the end of days when Satan has finally been defeated and we're gathered around the throne, we will look up and sitting there worthy of our worship and our hearts will be made full by worshiping him will be Jesus who will still be there. 
the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. When you zoom out, you zoom out of your immediate moment, you see Jesus in all of his glory. He has always been there. And he says, I love you. In John 10, 10, I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly. I love you. I love you. That's his message to you. I love you. I want you. He's always been with his people. In Matthew 28, he says, I'm with you always to the ends of the age. And over the course of the past 2,000 years, he has been there faithfully carrying out his purposes through messy, dysfunctional people trying to follow him. I want to encourage you, if you're struggling to worship Jesus today, zoom out. You will see very quickly how small you are, how temporary you are, how wonderfully magnificent he is, how good he is. And that God, if you're in Christ, is with you. I told you I'd zoom out one more time. I want to close by telling you our genealogy, Mercy Church's genealogy. Not a genealogy of individuals, but a genealogy of churches. Because Scripture says that we are children of Abraham, not by blood, but by faith. Faith in the saving blood of Christ. The church that sent us out about five years ago did most of this research, and we get to build on this legacy. It's pretty awesome. And the point of me sharing it with you today is to remind you again, by zooming out, you can see the faithfulness of God to you and I. And as I go through our genealogy, I want to remind you of two things. First, just like God redeemed bad motives and bad actions to bring out his purposes in scripture and to redeem even when people were messed up, that story, just like he did in scripture, is true in church history too. Right? This is me saying not everything has been great in church history. There's been some dark, dark days. It's not saying that church history has all been great. It's saying that he has always been faithful. And this is just one genealogy I'm about to share with you. Every church has one. I think of our student director, Alan, grew up in a church in Kenya that has a very different genealogy. It, it probably, actually, I, can, I think I can point to where it was um, from the same spot, and then it branched off. Same is true for the church in Korea and in Iran and China. This is just our story. And I share this lastly for a particular reason. Starting this summer, next week, we're going to be studying the book of Acts together. And I'll be calling you to consider how God has positioned you to carry his gospel to those that don't know it. And as you consider that, I want you to trust the faithfulness of God. I want you to trust, uh, I want you to trust him. So consider the story of Mercy Church as the closing of Ruth and the opening of our sermon series in Acts. This is going to take me about seven minutes to share. So hang in there. Here we go. From Jerusalem to Charlotte, the faithfulness of God. <laughs> Acts 1.8, approximately 37 AD, Jesus gives the great commission to take the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. 42 AD, Mark goes to Egypt. 49 AD, Paul heads to Turkey. And then in 51 AD, to Greece. 52 AD, Thomas heads to India. By 54 AD, Paul, on his third missionary journey in Gentile regions, reporting great success, saying that wherever he goes, Gentiles believe, it seems, he says, God has already been preparing them. By the end of the first century, there were three great Gentile church planting centers. There's Antioch, there's Rome, and there's Alexandria, which is northern Egypt. From these centers, churches are planted all over the Roman Empire, and at the end of the third century, it's estimated half of the Roman Empire is Christian. When in 432, a guy named Patrick 
responds to a dream, and carries the gospel to Ireland, which people commemorate every year by getting smashed and pinching people, right? In 596, I know, we do not do that man justice. In 596, there was a church planter named Augustine. He ventures into what is now known as England, settles in what's now known as Canterbury, plants a church there, and baptizes 10,000 people in the first two years. In 650, a monk named Cademan completes the first English translation of the Bible. The next 500 years or so are a little bit sketchy in terms of Christian history, so I call them the Dark Ages, but one of the good things that came out of it was a conviction by many Christians that the most effective way to spread the gospel was to put the Bible in the language of the people. By 1200 AD, the Bible's available in 22 different languages. In 1526, William Tyndale publishes the New Testament in everyday English and attempts to get it into the hands of the people. The state church feels like this threatens their authority, so the king of England has Tyndale imprisoned, and on October 6, 1536, has him strangled and then burned at the stake. Tyndale's last words were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. 100 years later, that prayer is answered when the king of England sponsors the publication of the largest Bible project ever commenced, the King James Version. In the 15th through the 18th century, then a wave of missions occurs. Christians go into Central Africa, inland China, remote countries in Southeast Asia. In 1587, the first two baptisms we know of in North America take place right here in North Carolina. Two Native Americans were baptized on Roanoke Island, part of what we now know as the Lost Colony. 1609, a guy named John Smith plants a church in England founded on the belief that the Bible alone was Christian's authority, that salvation is by faith alone and should be followed up by baptism. So it's called, it's the very first Baptist church. 1611, Thomas Helwes is sent out by that church in Amsterdam, plants the first Baptist church in England. Over the next 30 years, that church plants 50 other churches in London. 1638, because of persecution, one of those pastors named Roger Williams leaves England and comes to America and establishes the first Baptist church in America in Providence, Rhode Island. You still with me? We're now in America. Everybody good? Okay. 1727, that church helped plant the first Baptist church in North Carolina, Shiloh Baptist Church in Chowan County. 1740, famous evangelist George Whitfield takes a preaching tour through North Carolina. Great response. There's 35,000 people that would come at a time to hear him. He goes back to Massachusetts, tells this story, and a guy named Shubal Stearns gets inspired to go be a church planter in North Carolina. And in 1751, he moves to North Carolina with um, 14 people. His wife, excuse me, 15 people was his wife, and they had 14 kids. That was their church planting team, all right? (laughs) They plant... Sandy Creek Baptist Church in Liberty, North Carolina. In two years, that church grows from 16 to 600. And then they plant 42 others in North Carolina. Out of that movement, two very important churches to Mercy's genealogy were planted in the mid-1800s. One was 1845, Durham, North Carolina. Over the next 40 years, that church moved locations, changed their name from Rose of Sharon Baptist, Durham Baptist, and finally First Baptist Church of Durham, 1878. First Baptist began to plant a whole bunch of churches, saw a need in northern Durham, so they planted one in 1907 called North Durham Church. That changed its name to Grace Baptist in 1921, and in 1961 set up a mission on Duke Street called the Grace Baptist Mission. Within a year, they renamed themselves Homestead Heights Baptist Church. That was 1962. In 2002, that church renamed itself the Summit Church, and I walked in there as a sophomore attending UNC Chapel Hill. 
That church had a vision to plant a thousand churches. And in 2015, 13 years later, a group of me and 60 others decided to plant a church in Charlotte, North Carolina, that we called Mercy Church. Speaking of Charlotte, the second important church planted in the mid-1800s was First Baptist Charlotte in 1853. They continued planting churches in 1947. Billy Graham's first ever crusade was held right there. 1953, FBC sees a need down in the rural side of South Charlotte, beyond the city borders, down Providence Road, so they plant Providence Baptist Church. In 1981, that church saw a need to go even further down Providence Road, so they planted Candlewick Baptist Church. In 2018, Candlewick Baptist members felt a need to reach people through a new strategy, so their members voted to join Mercy Church, give the paid-off building and all its assets to a three-year-old church plant called Mercy Church. That's what I'm standing in right now. In 2021, we launched Mercy Northeast because we want to see the gospel advance at the university and in the surrounding community there. Two weeks ago, we announced that we're sending out two of our own to plant another church in Charlotte. And I'm trying to convince you right now in this moment to enthusiastically join God's mission because he has always been and will always be faithful. That's our God. Please hear as a celebration of the faithfulness of God. That God is available to you in full today. And if he has been faithful through all of that, all the messiness and dysfunction that you know has come over the past 2,000 years, and as we see in scripture, far more than that, he is going to be faithful to you. He can redeem whatever you are walking in right now. He can set you free from it. He can heal brokenness. And I promise you, if he has been faithful all that time, first and foremost, to the resurrected Jesus Christ and to the forgiveness we have in him, if he has been faithful to that, he will be faithful to you tonight and tomorrow. You can trust him. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for our story. Thank you for the story of scripture. It's a story of your faithfulness to your purposes to redeem people from all parts of the earth. Bring them home as your bride. Oh, thank you, Father. God, would you give us eagerness to join you and what you are doing, to trust you with our lives, to say yes to you as we go into the book of Acts where we say, yes, Father. I'm willing to go wherever you call me to go, do whatever you ask me to do, because you are faithful. You are faithful to save me, and the one who was faithful will always be faithful. Give us spirit-motivated, spirit-infused courage to carry the great hope of the gospel to those in need in our family, in our homes, in our schools, in our community into the far ends of the earth.